All right, third through fifth graders, I think you are dismissed. You have class this morning. So you guys can go ahead and head back there. As they're heading back there, uh, grab your Bibles. Open to the book of Galatians. If you don't have a Bible uh, and would like one or need one, if you want to raise your hand uh, or feel comfortable doing that, somebody in the back will bring one to you. Um, Galatians chapter 5. Take your time turning there. Use your index if you need to. Uh, There's no shame uh, in having to do that. Uh, So, while... You guys are turning to the book of Galatians. I want to start out by using a financial illustration. So, uh, I am in no way a financial expert, so forgive me if I misspeak here. The extent of my financial knowledge came from um, Brad Meyer's personal finance class in high school. So, I don't know. Is he here this morning? I don't think I see him, but that's the extent of my financial knowledge. I don't have much of it, but here's my best shot. Uh, in, in finance, there's a lot of talk about diversifying your portfolio. And, and so the, the idea behind this is that you divide up your investments and you spread them out between a number of different spots. So rather than investing all of your financial assets in one place, you'd put just a few of them here, a few of them there, you just spread them out. And the idea behind it is that this lowers your risk for loss, while also increasing your chance for profit. So let's say I have $100, and I invest that whole $100 in one spot, and after time, that $100 drops to 50 right? I, I haven't profited. Right? I've, I've lost $50. Now, let's say I diversify that. I, I split it up. I invest 50 in one spot, 50 in another. Over time, that first investment grows to, say, $80, and over time, that second investment drops to $30. All right, so even though my second investment dropped and I lost money there, overall, I profited because I diversified, and so now my money is ultimately grown, right? And that was uh, an, advan- an advantage for me to diversify my portfolio. All right, so it, this is a, it's a wise principle in finance, At least that's what they tell me. Again, I don't know much about it. Um, But as wise as it might be in finance, it is absolutely disastrous when applied spiritually. Because sometimes we are tempted to diversify our spiritual portfolios, much like we do financially. But again, as wise as it is financially, spiritually it has absolutely disastrous effects. And in today's text, in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes to the the believers in the church in Galatia to address this very problem. So I'm going to go ahead and read Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. All right, and follow along with me if you have your Bible. If your version sounds a little bit different than mine, that's okay. The meaning's all the same. It's just a different translation. Uh, Again, the meaning's the same. Uh, But Galatians 5, starting in verse 1, says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So a little bit more about the Galatian church. Paul had founded this church originally by his preaching of the gospel. So he goes there, preaches the gospel. These people believe that the Holy Spirit brings them to faith. And it's by that that the church begins in the Galatian region. And so these people knew the gospel. They had heard it. They believed it. They were familiar with it. Much like we do here and much like the church in America now does for the most part. We know the gospel. We've heard it. We've believed it. We know that it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that we're saved. So we don't need to be told that again, or so we think. But shortly after Paul departs from Galatia, some false teachers began creeping into the Galatian church, and they began uh, poisoning the minds of the Galatian believers. They were advising the Galatians to diversify their spiritual portfolios, so to speak. And so what these false teachers were teaching is that circumcision is necessary for salvation. So they were, they were, Paul had gone in, preached the gospel, said, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that you may be saved. And then these, these false teachers come in and they start saying, no, you have to be circumcised on top of your faith in Christ in order to truly be saved. And in so doing, in preaching this, they were sending the message that faith in Christ was not enough. That they needed to supplement their faith in Christ with their own works. Right? They were essentially telling the Galatians to invest a portion in faith in Christ and then to divide up that investment and invest a portion in their own works. And, and so you may be thinking, what's the big deal? This sounds like a harmless teaching. I mean, what's so bad about it? I have, I have faith in Christ. Yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins. But just to make sure I'm covered, why can't I just try to add some of my own obedience and some of my own good works on top of that? Right? I've invested in Jesus, but just in case right, that, that investment fails, I'm going to invest some of my own good works too to try to ensure that I don't lose out in the end and try to ensure that I profit in the end. Right? And so it's easy to think, well, what's, what's the big deal about this? Right, but Paul doesn't see it this, this way. Right, to use strong words, he saw this teaching as a damnable heresy and as a departure from the true gospel. And so he writes this letter to the Galatians to rebuke this teaching. And if you read the whole book of Galatians, you can feel Paul's tone come across. Right? It, it's strong. He's not, I mean, he's not playing games. He goes right at this teaching, the whole letter, and then at the end, just mic drops, walks off the stage. And so you, you can feel his sense of urgency, you can feel his intensity as he writes this. And it causes him to write things such as this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul considers this false teaching to be a false gospel 
in a dangerous heresy that is threatening these believers and is threatening the church. And if Paul considers this false teaching to be this dangerous, then it would be wise of us here today in the 21st century to pay attention to what he's saying. Now, obviously, the, 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 this specific issue of circumcision doesn't apply very much to us today. By and large, I don't know that the 21st century church is struggling with whether or not to become circumcised or, or remain uncircumcised. I don't think we're struggling with that. Right? But there are other things we're struggling with, similar things. Right? We're prone to becoming legalistic just as the Galatian church was, either towards ourselves or towards others. Right, so if we're in here, we're believers, we are prone to, to begin to trust in our own works rather than in the grace of Christ. Right? We, we, we sometimes wonder if our faith in Christ isn't enough, and so we start to try to add to the finished work of Christ with our own works. Or sometimes we begin to place conditions on the salvation of others. Right? We, we send the message to Unbelievers, other people, that you can't be saved unless you do this, unless you check this box or complete this uh, thing or get over this bar, right? And so we're just as prone to this as the Galatian church was. And so again, Paul's words are vital to us today in the church. And this, the letter to the Galatians is as relevant as it has ever been, and it will always be relevant because it takes the church right back to the gospel message upon which it was founded, while also defending against false gospels creeping in. So, all that being said, let's really start to look at the text at hand today. Again, Galatians 5, 1 through 6. So we read it once already. We're going to start now in verse 4, and then we're going to work backwards to 2 and 3, and then to verse 1. Then after that, then we'll come back to 5 and 6. So, verse 4, Paul says this, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So the issue with the false teaching at Galatia, with the, the telling people they had to be circumcised in order to be saved, was that it was leading people to seek to be justified by the law. Now, quick review here. To be justified is to be declared right with God. It's to be accepted by Him. And so, again, the issue is that these teachers were coming in, they were telling the Galatians this, and the Galatians were beginning to trust, not in Christ, but in their own obedience to the law, in their circumcision, for their right standing with God. So, a little bit about circumcision. Throughout the Old Testament... Um, and leading up to the coming of Jesus, circumcision was the covenant sign of belonging to God's people of Israel. And this was significant because being a part of God's nation of Israel was essentially the same as being right with God or, or being saved, to use our terminology today. Right? And so the thought throughout the whole Old Testament according to the law was that if you were circumcised and you just obeyed the ceremonial demands of the law, then that would make you a part of the Jewish nation of Israel. And if you were a part of that nation, then you were saved. That was their thinking more or less. Right? But when Christ came, he fulfilled the law, fulfilled his demands, right? so that the ceremonial aspects of it, circumcision, are now done away with. Those are no longer binding. Right? Not only that, but he also came and he expanded the people of God. 
So now salvation not only belongs to Israel, it belongs to Gentiles, Jews alike, by faith in Christ. So that it is now by faith in him that all people, Jew or Gentile, may come into the family of God and know salvation. Right, that happens when Christ came. He, circumcision is then fulfilled. That's no longer necessary. And so the book of Galatians is written after Christ came now. Right, so circumcision is no longer binding here. But again, these people were telling them that it is. You need circumcision on top of faith in Christ to be saved. Now, the, these Jewish teachers who were, who were teaching this, they weren't so ignorant as to completely forget about faith in Christ. They weren't coming in and they weren't telling the Galatian believers, okay, just for, totally forget about this Jesus guy you guys believed in and just, just become Jewish and get circumcised and follow the commands of the law. Right? That's not what they were saying. The false teaching was much more subtle than that and much more sneaky. Right, they were telling them, again, yeah, Jesus, he's great. We love him. Keep believing in him, but the work's not finished. Your salvation is not complete until you get circumcised and you keep obeying these commands of the Jewish law. So right, they saw circumcision as a necessary additive or an enhancement to faith in Christ. And they saw it as necessary for salvation. And by teaching this, they were teaching a salvation by a mixture of grace and works. So it's not just by grace alone that we're saved. It is by a mixture of God's grace and our own effort and our own works. And Paul gives a strong warning to anyone who would seek to be justified or saved in this way. Right? He says that if you are seeking to be justified by the law, if you are seeking right standing before God by works of the law, then you are severed from Christ and you are fallen away from grace. All right, his point here is simple. He's not talking about genuine believers forfeiting their salvation. Rather, he's saying that if you are seeking to be justified or saved by your own works, then you are essentially cutting yourself off from the opportunity to be saved by God's grace through Christ. If we're seeking to be justified by the law, then that's evidence that we never knew the grace of Christ in the first place. Again, this is not a harmless teaching Paul is dealing with here. It's not a harmless teaching that we're talking about today. Paul is taking it seriously. Now, working backwards, let's look at verses 2 and 3. Starting in verse 2 through verse 3, he says this, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So in these two verses, Paul talks about accepting circumcision. When he talks about accepting circumcision, he's talking about accepting it as a grounds for our acceptance before God. Uh, Does that make sense? So when we, he's saying that if you do this, if you accept circumcision in the hopes that it will make you right with God, then this. And he's going to give them two consequences of their doing this. And the first thing he says is this. If you accept circumcision in this way, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now that phrase, well, Christ will be of no advantage to you, may also be translated as Christ will profit you nothing carry on our financial illustration. 
Right? He, he's telling them, look, like Paul, I myself, the, the apostle from God, am telling you, if you do this, if you accept circumcision as a grounds for your justification before God, instead of Christ as the only grounds for your justification, then Christ is of no advantage to you. He will profit you nothing. If you divide up your investments between faith in Christ and circumcision and works, you will receive no spiritual dividends whatsoever. His point is that if we look to anything else for our right standing before God besides Christ, if we look to diversify our spiritual portfolio with our own works, then Christ will profit us nothing. He is no, of no advantage to us. All right. Concerning this, John Calvin said this. He said, Christ cannot be divided in this way, and he profits nothing unless he is wholly embraced. Whoever wishes to have the half of Christ loses the whole. All right. Christ cannot be divided in this way. He profits nothing unless he is wholly embraced. Whoever wishes to have the half of Christ loses the whole. Our salvation is either holy of grace through faith in Christ, or it is holy of ourselves and our works. We can't divide it up. It's not half and half, not part works, part grace. It is all of grace or all of works. Some of you may be asking why. Why must it be this way? So I have faith in Christ, but why can I not add some of my own obedience on top of that? Just to make sure I got my bases covered. Like, yeah, again, I believe in Jesus. I trust he's sufficient for salvation. I'm saved. But why can I not take matters into my own hands just to make sure I'm covered? Just to make sure that God will accept me. I'm going to trust in a few more things uh, just to make myself right with God. Here's why. Here's why this won't work. Right, to try to earn our justification or our right standing before God by our own works is something called legalism. Right, even if we say that it's only partially by our works that we're saved, it's still legalism. Now, legalism is the attempt to earn God's favor by our good works. It's the thought process that we are debtors to God and that we must pay him back by doing good things. And so gradually, over time, we will pay God back for the debt we have before him by those good things we do. Now, before we came to know Christ, we were indeed debtors to God. Right? So th- this part of it is true. We have all, in our sinful rebellion, incurred an infinite debt against our infinitely glorious God. And so... Because God is infinitely glorious, our rebellion against him is an infinite debt. And that infinite debt can't be paid back by something finite. Right? The payment must be of infinite worth. And legalism is disgusting to God because it diminishes his infinite worth. Right? See, when we try to make our, that infinite payment up with our own moral currency... We are belittling the glory of God. How dare we think that our petty and flawed righteousness can stand before a holy and righteous and glorious God? When we try to earn God's favor 
by bribing him with our own works and our own righteousness, right, we will profit nothing. Right, this is what Paul is trying to tell the Galatians. Right, legalism is disgusting to God because it diminishes is his infinite worth. Because we think that our petty and flawed righteousness can stand up to his infinite holiness and his glory. Legalism is also disgusting to God because it seeks not the glory of God, but the glory of man. And this is the very essence of sin. Right, think about it. If we could, hypothetically speaking, pay our own way back to God, who would receive the glory for that? Right, we would, right? If I, let's, this is completely hypothetical. Let's just say that I, by my own superior level of righteousness and piety and church attendance and obedience to God's moral standards, achieved right standing with God. Let's, let's, hypothetically, let's say that I did that. If I did that, I would stand before you today and I would boast in myself. Right? Because I did it. I achieved the impossible. I am that awesome, but I did it. I am so good, so moral, so righteous, I paid back my debt to God. But on the other hand, if we know that we contributed nothing towards our own salvation and that it is only by the cross of Jesus Christ that we are saved, then we can say, along with Paul, at the end of Galatians in 6.14, far be it from us to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? This is the way God has set salvation up. He has set salvation up in such a way, not that we receive the glory for it, but that he receives all the glory for it. And so that after we are saved, holy of his grace, not by our own works. We cannot stand before him and boast in ourselves, but we can stand before the world and boast in the cross of Christ because it's only by God's grace in the cross that we may be saved. So God despises legalism because it seeks not the glory of God, but the glory of man. And this is why Paul tells the Galatians that if they accept circumcision as the grounds for their salvation, then Christ will be of no advantage to them. They will be trusting in their own works. They'll be seeking their own glory rather than the glory of God and his grace. All right, if they seek their own justification by circumcision and works of the law, they will be severed from Christ and fallen away from grace. Now, that's the first thing Paul says about accepting circumcision, that it will profit them nothing. He goes on to say in verse 3 that every man who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. And so remember, we just said a little bit ago that with Christ, it is all or nothing. We either accept him and trust in him fully or we trust fully in our own works. It's the same thing with the law. There is no half and half. There is no justification by grace mingled with works. It is either holy of grace or holy of works. And so he's telling them, if you, you think you're just accepting this one small portion of the law, circumcision, just one small commandment, but if you accept that one commandment as a, a grounds for your salvation, then what you're doing is you're putting yourselves back under the yoke of slavery of the, the whole law. Because if you seek to be justified by one command of the law, you're seeking to be justified by the whole law rather than by faith in Christ. 
So either we are trusting in our own works or we are trusting in grace through faith in Christ. And if we seek to be justified by any work, we are obligated to seek our whole salvation by works. And that is a yoke of slavery that we must not put ourselves back under, which is exactly what Paul says in 5.1. When he says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Slavery is exactly what legalism gives us. We're enslaved to God, enslaved to the law, because it demands everything of us, but gives nothing in return. We're constantly demands more, 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 more obedience, right? More righteousness, more works, right? More church attendance, more tithing, more serving the church, more whatever it might be. And Paul says, you've been freed from that. Right? You don't have to go around looking to be justified, looking to be saved by your own works. You don't have to show up to church with a guilty conscience that, man, maybe this is the week that this is the, you know, the, that number of church attendance that I reach, and this is it. I, I attained it today. No, God has freed us from that in Christ. We have been freed from that yoke of slavery. No amount of church attendance, no amount of, of tithing of service to the church, no amount of good works, of money to the poor, whatever good works you put in there, no amount will save us. Only Christ can. And so we have been freed from that burden of slavery. Free to show up to church on a Sunday morning. Not because we have to, not as a means for our salvation, but because we have been freed. Because God has freed us to sing his glory all the days of our lives. And so we're going to come and we're going to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ who have also been saved by God's grace. So for freedom, Christ has set us free. So let us not put ourselves back under a yoke of slavery. This brings us to verses 5 and 6. Now in verses 1 through 4, Paul gives a lot of negative commands. He gives us the the don'ts. Don't don't do this. These are the negative things. These are what you're trying to avoid. But in verses 5 and 6, he gives us the positive things, the, the do's. And so what he says in verse 5, starting out, the first do he says is this. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. What he's saying is that we who are truly believers in Christ are doing the exact opposite thing of unbelievers who are trusting in their own works for their salvation. Right? See, rather than seeking to establish our own righteousness by our own works and be justified by our works, it is by faith that we put our hope, not in our own righteousness and in our own works, but in the righteousness of Christ that's going to be revealed to us and given to us at that final day. Right? See, in one sense, our justification is complete because God has pronounced it over us. So in, you're in your sin, you're a believer. That moment that you, in faith, believed in Christ, trusted in him for your salvation, God looked upon you and pronounced you not guilty, right? innocent and righteous before him, based on Christ's righteousness and his perfect work. 
Right? So in one sense, our justification is complete. He's pronounced that verdict, and that will stand for all eternity. In another sense, it has yet to be completed, and it will not be completed until that day that we stand before God face to face. He looks upon us right, and says to us, Well done, my good and faithful servant. And he accepts us into his presence, not based on our works, but based on Christ's work. And it's important to distinguish between talking about justification as a past event and a future event. Because in this verse, 5-5, Paul is talking about our justification as a future event that has yet to be fulfilled entirely. And his point is that as we await for our justification to be entirely fulfilled, we don't take matters into our own hands. We don't try to establish our own righteousness. We don't try to earn that justification by works. Rather, we wait by faith. And as we wait for that day in faith, we do so through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Again, this is the exact opposite thing of what the false teachers were telling the Galatians to do. The false teachers were telling the Galatians that, look, as you wait for that day, you know, your faith in Christ needs some help. Why don't you throw in some good works there as you wait? And that will ensure that you'll profit in the end. And again, Paul says, absolutely not. We, through the Spirit, by faith, wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness. And so as we wait, we wait by constant faith in Christ. Constant trust, not in our goodness, but in his goodness before God. And we do so through the power of the Spirit. It's the Spirit who initially gives us this gift of faith to believe and so be justified. It's the Spirit who sustains our faith in Christ and helps us to persevere for that day. It's a spirit who gives us hope that we will not be put to shame on that day because he has been given to us and poured out into our hearts as a seal of our inheritance. And it's a spirit who gives us an eagerness for that day to come quickly. And so as we wait, we don't take matters into our own hands. We wait by faith through the power of the spirit. And Paul's point in verse 5, to sum it up, is that we put all our investments in Christ. He is sufficient. He will profit us in the end. If we divide them up, he will profit us nothing. We must go all in on Christ, and he assures us that he is sufficient. And God has given us his spirit to give us that assurance that Christ is sufficient to save us for that day. This brings us finally to verse 6. Now, verse 6 is almost like a summary statement for this whole passage. It's almost like Paul sums up his whole thoughts on the, the issue at hand and, and he, by saying what he says in verse 6. And, and he says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. His point is simple here, and it sums up the whole passage. And his point is this, It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not. That's what he's telling the Galatians. Your circumcision before God means absolutely nothing. It counts for nothing. Your uncircumcision, on the other hand, before God means absolutely nothing as well. 
Now, again, circumcision, that doesn't so much apply to us directly today. But Paul is applying here a much broader principle that applies to the church at all times and in all places and in all cultures. And that principle is this, that our acceptance before God is based not on our works or lack thereof, but based solely on Christ's work and our faith in his work. I notice how he says, for in Christ, so for us who are in Christ, that, that's us as believers, we are in Christ. For us, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts. As in, like, it's not a contributing factor to our salvation. It has no strength or no power to accomplish that right standing before God. And you can, you can substitute any any work you want in for circumcision or uncircumcision, right? For in Christ, neither perfect church attendance nor imperfect church attendance counts for anything. For in Christ, neither tithing a certain amount nor not tithing a certain amount counts for anything. Right? For in Christ, neither, I mean, insert the most heinous of sins you want in that place. For in Christ, neither whatever it is counts towards our justification. What does count towards our justification? He answers it in that verse when he says, in two words, only faith. His point is that when we stand before God on that day, God is going to take into account not whether we are circumcised or uncircumcised, not any of our works. He's going to look upon us and see if the perfect work of Christ has been attributed to us by faith. If we have been united to Christ, if we have invested all in on him by faith. That is alone what counts in our justification. That is alone what will complete our salvation. Now, one more thing about this verse. Notice how he ends. He says, so what counts? It's only faith... And he ends by saying, working through love. So he gets done saying how works won't save us, and then he tells us that our faith works through love. What does this mean? He's not saying that love is a necessary supplement to our faith. He's not saying that our justification is dependent upon how well we love others or how well we love God. Rather, he's saying that true and genuine faith in Christ, the faith that will save us, will produce as a natural byproduct genuine love. Genuine love for God, genuine love for others. Right? This is an age-old argument and debate between, about grace and works and what their relationship is. And the proper biblical conclusion is never that works save us, but that works are always a natural outworking of true faith. If we have truly believed in Christ, if we truly understand what he has accomplished for us, the only proper response is a radically transformed life. So the only thing that counts towards our justification is faith working through love. Those works don't save us, but our faith will produce those works. In fact, if you read on in Galatians 5, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? That is the evidence that we are indeed saved, that we have been given the Spirit of Christ and are saved. 
Now, to sum all that up, my Galatians 5, 1 through 6. We've already talked a little bit about application, but how do these words apply to us today? Right, once again, we're not really faced with the issue of circumcision on a weekly basis. Again, this issue of circumcision is totally irrelevant to us. But again, Paul is applying a much broader principle that's bigger than circumcision. And that principle is that we are accepted by God and the basis of our right standing before him is not our own works or lack thereof, but Christ's work. So how does this apply to us? Man, we're just like the Galatians, right? We're a church. We've, right, we've heard the gospel. We know it. We believe it. We sing it. We preach it. But yet we're prone to forget it and we're prone to slide into legalistic tendencies. Right? It may not be taught explicitly from the front, but every congregation, every church is prone to having legalism just kind of slide in sneakily into its congregational life. And again, we start to buy into the lie that our acceptance before God is predicated upon our own performance. Or we start to believe that God's acceptance of us is dependent on how, how good of people we are or how closely we follow the rules. We begin to worry that faith in Christ is not enough, so we begin to trust in other little things besides our faith in Christ, hoping that they'll cover us everywhere that Christ falls short. We begin to trust in our church attendance or our our tithing or our our church service or whatever it may be. We begin to trust in our own morality. Well, how good of a person have I been this month or this week? We begin to trust in our own prayer or Bible reading habits. Well, God, I'm probably not accepted before God anymore because I only read my Bible for two minutes this week. Or I only prayed for five minutes. Uh, we're all prone to this. We all, as believers, are, we subtly slide into this and buy into this lie. And when we do that, we are undermining the very gospel of grace that has saved us in the first place. Because if it's not by our, it's not by our own works that we have been saved, only by our faith in Christ's work. So, church, listen. We can add nothing to the finished work of Christ. He is more than capable and more than willing to save us. He is sufficient. He will cover us fully. He will not fall short. Hebrews 7.25 says this, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save to the uttermost, not partially, to the uttermost. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession before them. What that means is this, that right now in this moment, our Lord and Savior, Jesus, is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people. So when we, when we sin, when we fall short, when we do whatever it may be, Christ is standing before God the Father, reminding him, my perfect work, my perfect righteousness has been attributed to that person. Right, so he is interceding for us and he is able to save to the uttermost. Right, Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation. It's not dependent on what we do or what we will do. 
Our trust in his work is enough. No amount of church attendance or money given or prayer or Bible reading or good works will ever be enough to reconcile us to a holy God. And how dare we think that it would. Right? Only Christ can. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. I'll say that again. Christ plus anything equals nothing. Christ plus nothing equals everything. If you could sum up the whole book of Galatians in one way, that would be it. Christ plus nothing equals everything. Christ plus anything equals nothing. So if you're here today and you're struggling with this type of legalism and this burden of slavery in your own life, let this passage be a warm blanket for your soul. You're free. You're no longer a slave. You are, you've been free now to live a, a robust and full and free life of faith in Christ, empowered by his spirit living inside of you. Right? You can get off the treadmill of works, just going and going and going over and over again, trying to make yourself right before God. Right? Get off the treadmill. You can stop worrying that you're not good enough. You're not good enough. That's the gospel. But Christ was good enough on our behalf. You don't have to place a yoke of rules and regulations over your neck. Right? We're free from that. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let us stand firm, therefore, and not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right, so, as believers, we are now free to stop working and free to start living by faith in Him. Right? Faith that produces love love for God, love for others. And now we live robust lives where we do good works, do good things, not because we think they save us, but precisely because he has saved us and we're just living in response now. And that's the first big way this applies to us today. Right? Let that passage be a warm blanket for your soul as a believer. The second way this would apply to us is this. We're in this passage, if you look at the people, we are either the Galatian, the people themselves being told and taught, and we think that we need to do things in order to earn our salvation, or we are the false teachers themselves, right? Putting conditions upon the salvation of others. And so, man, man, for us as believers and for this church, what message are we sending people? What message are we sending unbelievers? Now, and I know I'm here every week. We don't stand up front. We, we never tell you explicitly, you must be saved by works. Right? But are we sending this message to people, either knowingly or unknowingly? Are we, are we subtly telling people that they, they can't become Christians unless they uh, do this, uh, attend church three times a month or, or tithe 10% or uh, stop drinking a certain amount of alcohol or only read your Bible so much, whatever it may be, right? We're doing what the false teachers in Galatia were doing. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that he became sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, and that even when we were dead in our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. 
And so are we putting conditions on the salvation of others? It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Let us stand firm and not place ourselves or place others back under a yoke of slavery. All right, this is, what, this is why Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, and this is what he is still saying to us today. Right, there cannot and there will not be any diversification of our spiritual portfolios. We will not divide up our investments between faith in Christ and our own works. Right, rather, we will invest entirely in the righteousness of Christ. As we, through the Spirit, by faith, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness to be revealed to us. And so, and so until that day comes, until Christ comes, right, and our salvation is made complete, right, let us wait, not in our own power, but in the power of Christ and His Spirit. Right, let us not desert Him who has called us in His grace. And let us not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Rather, let us stand firm in the grace in which we stand as we hold fast to him who has loved us and called us in his grace. Let us not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Rather, let us walk and live in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us on the cross. Let us seek constantly to live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. What a testimony to the world that is. What a, what a bright light we shine to the world when we tell them that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that you may be saved. And when we live and walk in that freedom that he has bought for us. Let us not place conditions on the salvation of others. Right, but let us proclaim, as Jesus did, that anyone who is hungry may come and eat. And anyone who thirsts, let him come and drink. Let us not turn to another gospel, for there is no other gospel. But let us contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. And lastly, let us not boast in our flesh. But rather, let us boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, just as Paul did. Matt, worship team, I want to ask you guys to come forward as we close. Right, let us resolve to boast not in ourselves, but in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For God has saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And so, let us stand and sing this now. Let us stand and sing as a people who has been freed, right, freed from a yoke of, of slavery, Right, freed from that treadmill of works. Right, let us stand and sing as a people who have gone all in on Christ and his sufficiency. As a people who are filled with the Spirit of God. Right, as we eagerly await that day when he'll finally complete our salvation. Knowing that as we wait, it is by his grace alone, through our faith in Christ alone, and for his glory alone that he has saved us. Right, God has given us a song of our salvation. And so let us stand and sing that now as we're going to be singing it for all eternity. So let's stand and let's pray before we sing this song.
like sheep have gone astray without a shepherd, that we have all belittled your name, belittled your glory. We've all rebelled against you. But we know that we all have incurred an infinite debt against you. Lord, yet in your grace, while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, to die the death we deserved. So, Lord, we know that he became our sin, even though he knew no sin, and that by our faith in him, we become his righteousness. Father, you've bought freedom for us at the cross. Help us now to live and walk in that freedom. Lord, help us to be a people freed from uh, the treadmill of works. Help us to live lives of freedom filled with your spirit. That we may shine the light of the gospel to the world. Lord, for anyone in here who is struggling with this burden of slavery and legalism, I just pray that you would give his or her soul just a sense of that freedom you've bought for him or her right now. Lord, give them peace. Give them rest they can rest from their works that Christ has accomplished it all. And Lord, let them live as a free people. Father, help us as a body of believers to never put conditions on the salvation of others. For God, we know that you put no conditions on our salvation, but we came to you when we were at our worst. And in faith, we trusted in Jesus while we were at our worst. And that is by his stripes we are healed. So, Father, let us proclaim this message to anyone here today and to anyone who we come across throughout this week. Father, you have saved us by your grace. It is for your glory alone that you have saved us. Let us be a people now who will stand and sing all glory to him who has saved us.